This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Vincent Deboni, who is a South African restaurateur and resident and also a psychology major later on in life. And he comes on my channel and gives me the sweet sour lowdown on the situation in South Africa and the context of the situation within South Africa, who last week was engulfed in looting and riots and seems to be sort of returning to normal. But what were the conditions that caused that unrest. Vincent gets right into that. It's a very, very complex and fascinating and actually a hopeful story. And we could have easily gone on for five hours with this and we kind of cut it short at just under two hours. So get yourself ready for one of the most informative conversations of the summer, at least to my mind. Without further ado, here is Vincent Deboni. So I started studying psychology um, two, now two and a half years ago. Um, full time, and I had been on uh, Twitter in, in two different iterations before that, um, trying to figure out what's going on with with the politics and the you know between America's politics. South Africa tends to follow America's politics in many ways, um, definitely culturally. So um, I, I was trying to figure all that out because I'm 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 very interested in 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 the whole, all the dynamics that come into it, you know, and the more I started noticing that South Africa's Twitter is just toxic. Um, I mean, America's political Twitter is quite toxic as well. So I, I actually deleted an account, um, came back on and tried something different and then, and then realized that I was doing the same thing again. And then it's funny because the, the, uh, the coinciding with reading some psychology, I realized what I was doing wrong and I came back on and I was very particular about who I followed, um, you know, what I liked and, and that kind of thing, you know. So this, this new account is really, um, let me say, the, the real version of where I want to go rather than where I've been, you know. Um, I've, had a, I've had a huge change in, in just my whole identity. Um, I went from being a, a restaurant owner um, beginning of last year, basically, you know. Um, but when I started studying, I, I think I realized, you know, to 20, beginning of 2019, it's the first week being in that college, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> this is just brilliant, you know. Even though I was with a bunch of much younger students, um, just the material and the, the authenticity of being able to just talk about how we function instead of all the you know, the, the, the headings, you know what I mean? Like you, you, when you go into Twitter, you get slammed with like trigger words and keywords. And now you can actually talk about things, you know? So yeah. Higher education is kind of wasted on the, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and, and I've, I've had to resist saying pretty much that in class, you know, but, but I must say I've, I've now I've watched this, this cohort of mine and we were, we're a very small group. There's only, there's 12 of us now. Um, 
and I've watched them mature, which has been actually in itself an amazing experience. Um, I've been through some drama with one or two of them um, where they kind of reached out to me because obviously I'm the oldest in the class and they kind of, I suppose they see me as a bit of an older brother kind of thing. Hopefully not older, not parent, but um, but that's inevitable, you know, and I've kind of, I was kind of worried about that in the beginning, but I've got used to that now. Um, I had that mm-hmm. same role in my business as well. I had I had my restaurant for 21 years and I hired a lot of young people. Um, and I found that it's, it's just, if it's thrust upon you, what are you going to do? You know, you have to um, make the most of it, you know. And I kind of found myself giving people advice and then wanting to walk away and then sort of reeling me back in, you know. So hmm. um, it's been interesting actually actually focusing on psychology and, and like saying, okay, I'm going to help people, you know. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do that yet, I must admit. Um, I love the idea of being a counselor, but then there's part of me that I feel like I can just achieve more if I write. So I don't know where I'm going to end up, you know. But anyway, whatever, that's life. <laughs> You said something really interesting. It might be useful for many people, myself included, but you said that you were doing something wrong and then you thought about yeah. things through a psychological lens, spe- specifically on Twitter. Yeah. What were you doing wrong? And then what? how did your yeah. focus I or think, your modality I think change? you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, Benjamin, <laughs> we, we are torn by... Uh, and, and just excuse me if I slip into some Jungian um, language because I'm just mesmerized by Jung at the moment. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm just so aware now how um, we spend most of our time like floating on a current instead of actually swimming, you know. Um, so we we sort of instead of being these 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 beings that can direct the, where we're going in the river or in the ocean of, of information, of ideas, we, we jump in and we, you know, let's say we attach ourselves some nice floaty goodies that are the, the boys that keep us going, but that's Facebook, Twitter, um, you know, whatever it is, your, your, your immediate community, your, your little club or whatever it is. Um, and I mean, you know, like the people that, that when you meet them, they seem perfectly normal, um, at home, they go on to groups that are, that are antisocial, you know, I mean, I'm speaking very broadly, don't, then I don't want, you know, your, 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 um, fans to, to sort of misunderstand me that we all have these categories, obviously, but what I realized when when I had the sort of uncontrolled account was that's what I was doing. I was just floating in the ocean. And if a current came along, it just tore me in one direction. And I found myself, um, you know, it's weird because I found myself defending things like Donald Trump. And, and I was like, what am I doing? You know, I don't actually care. I'm South African. And I'm, I'm as you mm. can see, I'm very South African. Um, I'm, I was, you know, I'm Italian as well. I'm, I suppose I'm culturally Italian, but South African in sort of my, my patriotism. Um, but it's very bizarre when you, when you find yourself all of a sudden wrapped up in these ideas that are, 
um, that are not universal at all. They're very specific to a small moment in time involving one guy or one group, you know. And actually, if we all mm. just focused on these, and I, I warned you I was going to use some Jungian stuff, but if we focused on these archetypal things, um, like, you know, what is character? Um, what is morality? What is, and, and I know this is what philosophy does, but the, my sort of decision to study psychology instead was more about um, first understanding the mechanisms, you know, what is the, the behaviorism behind it all? Because you, you can't, I've read a lot of philosophy and I, I feel like that kind of, that it's, it's brilliant and it's all very necessary. So I, I appreciate most philosophers, but um, at the end of the day, we have to find a way to work with this. And, you know, what's between, um, you know, let me say Karl Marx and what we're doing today, you know, and I, I know you've read my paper, so you know where I'm coming from, that the, at the end of the day, that, that's what's happening to us is we're being manipulated, um, like everywhere, we've been manipulated for the, the resource that we provide to give other people power. Um, you know, and it, it's so bizarre that, that that's what apartheid was. And here we are 27 years later. And I, I'm, I just look around me and I'm, I just see people giving away their, their power, you know. Um, so, I, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm going to ramble, ramble on and on if you don't stop me. <laughs> no, that, that's a really interesting quandary. Um, and you see it a lot where there is a societal structure that's oppressive. It gets dismantled and then it just gets recreated with a different skin. And it, it's like these structures come into place over human beings, over exactly. collective human beings. And it's really, really difficult to actually. So we keep doing uh, the same thing wrong. Any sort of revolution, you know, a true and, revolution. And, and you, the American system, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert, but the little bit that I do know tries to um, correct for that, you know. But in actual fact, all over the world, we keep repeating the same mistake. And some of us get it better and some of us um, revert for other because of whatever other circumstances or, you know, natural events or whatever. But you see what, you see what I'm saying is you're either, you're either contributing to the one or the other. You're either contributing to the same old game, you know, the same old chessboard. It's black and white. Let's not get into the race thing yet but <laughs> uh -oh, yeah, at yeah. least <laughs> it's, it's politically we 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 just can't help ourselves you know so i i, I don't know yeah. there's it wasn't in um the piece that i wrote the devil's finest trick it's in a different thing that i that i put on my page um where i mentioned and uh, so i haven't published everything i've written on my wordpress page i've just published the things I find particularly interesting. But the one thing that I was like, as I was writing this little piece, I, I, it, it struck me that the, this, this mother archetype and father archetype that I know is a very known um, uh, construct in psychology and in philosophy. Um, but my God, we really need to educate people that there's this, um, this sort of um, diode I, I, the word I like this word diode because we because it implies that we're pulled to these two different directions, and then there's very few of us mm -hmm. that go. Um, I'm hoping I am one of them now, 
Um, but there's a few, few of us that can go, you know what, dad's right sometimes and mom's right sometimes. Um, if you look at mm. America's politics, it's, it's, it's one diode and the other diode. And everyone's just drawn to these two polar opposite. What are we doing differently? We're not doing anything differently. And I know there's, there's, there's people like, um, I know Brett Weinstein tried to do something uh, last year. And there's lots of people working to try and, and build up the, the middle ground, you know. And, and that's why I find America's politics so interesting because um, it's far more um, intellectually progressive than, than, than most other countries. I mean, I think Europe's very um, stuck in their ways as well. So I, I wouldn't look to Europe for solutions. And, and what's happening in America um, has lessons for, for South Africa, for what's gone wrong in South Africa, because we've done the same thing. You know, we, we were being, if you don't mind me talking in these sort of broad terms, we were being abused for 20, sorry, sorry for 48 years uh, as a nation, obviously I'm speaking, um, we were being abused by the apartheid system. Uh, we can go into the past. Obviously, we're a traumatized nation, but we were being abused mm-hmm. in this home. And then we managed to get the abuser out. And we invited someone else in. You know, you can put it in different ways, but but all of a sudden the abuse is reoccurring. So we ha- we have to ask ourselves, what is going on in the room? You know, what is wrong in the house? Um, and that's why I say, that's why I left that whole argument of they're wrong, we're right. Oh, but sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes we're just completely missing the point all the time. Um, mm. and, and ultimately we leave ourselves vulnerable and the next generation comes along and they watch. I, I, I try not to talk derogatively about adults, but cause I am an adult, but, um, I, I really, I have a sense that so many adults just get off the rails and they just, you know, buy the house, buy the car, have kids and, and get, they, they get off the rails of progress, let's say, and they get onto the chessboard, you know, to go back to the chessboard and they just, and they just fit into their blocks and they don't move out of those blocks. And we need to do more than that, you know, and, and the children look at us and they go, well, you suck. You, you just, what are you doing? That's any better. You're doing the same thing over and over again. You you profess to have this opinion and those morals and that opinion. And and we wonder why there's so many young people confused. Because where are the role models? You know? And I'm not I'm not I'm not talking about like traditional role models, please, Benjamin. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about role models that can show that there's a way to think about each other and about the world. And there's a way that we can detach ourselves from being victims of politics and of the politicians. You know, we're all moaning about the politicians, but who actually detaches? No one, you know, well, no one, I'm being dramatic, obviously, but, <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> you know, I'm yeah, Italian. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would you mind sketching apartheid, like the conditions in, in which it came to be? Wow, sure, that's a minefield, but I don't mind. Um, you know, one, one of my, um, uh, let's say, one of my paradigms that I'm adopting in my life now is um, we can't keep talking about new masculinities and then no one practices new masculinities. So 
in that vein, let me let me stick my neck out um, because most guys would go, I'm not going to talk about that, <laughs> you know. Um, all right, so how it came to be. Um, look, I think the first thing we have to say, well, the, the, the most important thing is nothing I'm, I'm writing or have said is an excuse for apartheid, is justifying apartheid, is – um, you know, validating it in any way. All right. So let me just make that clear. And and some people might okay. think that I'm that I'm uh, contradicting myself when 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 they hear what I'm going to say. But um, it's very difficult for foreigners to understand. Okay. Um, you know, we talk about uh, diversity, but actually, when you when people get faced with real diversity, they go back to their diodes. They, they retreat back to their diets because that's how they survive. That's how they navigate the game of life on that chessboard. That's, that's just what they do, most people. So in that vein, um, we all know that, the, the, you know, when they talk about the man of – he was a man of his time. Uh, we talk about Darwin was a man of his time. There were certain things that he was living under. Um, I, I won't go into a whole long thing, but I think we all know that. I think your, your uh, viewers are – um, pretty, pretty, probably pretty much educated in the idea that you know Darwin might have had opinions that today are not um, uh, acceptable. PC. Yeah, PC. Oh yeah. And I mean, you know, let's be realistic. There were opinions we had ten years ago that are not acceptable. So let's just be realistic. First of all, the when you look sincerely at the history of South Africa, it's actually got an incredible um, birth story. If I, if I can put it that way, because so let me try and sort of pick on the things that your audience won't um, necessarily know. Um, and I'll accept that some of these things are arguable. And if you do want to argue that, find me on Twitter and let's 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 hey, not argue it, but listen, let's discuss it. Just yeah, just tell the story yeah. and so then we'll, we'll the argue thing that most about people don't understand is that the southern tip of Africa was very sparse. And the few people that were here were certainly not coming across each other very often. Then you have colonialism, and, and, and this is the part that's going to hurt, is that some of the colonialism was within Africa that came down from Central Africa. The history of the Bantu people is a, a story of Central Africa, okay? Um, and, and by natural processes of, of, of naturally occurring hierarchy, um, they they moved away from each other. They grew bigger. They moved away from each other, um, as we all did uh, at some point in our history. So, without giving you too much detail, we must just understand that South Africa is a contested piece of the earth. By by, it's contested by everybody. Um, and and like with many countries, um, if you really want to talk about the first nation of South Africa, it's the Bushmen. And we should all get out of here. And we should leave it to the, I think there's something like 5,000 Bushmen left, you know. Um, so, hmm. so to, 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 for me, it's a fruitless exercise to argue about everything that happened between the first Bushmen getting chased off his patch because they were nomadic hunters. Um, uh, so I... If, if, if you want to know the whole history of that, yeah. you'd have to go and do some research. But suffice to say, the Bushmen were throughout Southern Africa. Okay. And then obviously almost at, at the same time or at, or at a different time, the, the, the whites started landing on the coast 
and th- here we go. And that was the, confer- the, the conflict that yeah. everything in between was pretty much inevitable. Okay, people are contesting the same piece of land. Each one has their own claim to rights. Um, and lots of atrocities were committed in between. All right. I certainly am no fan of the British colony. Um, I, I, I don't want to upset anyone, but um, they certainly made a lot of big mistakes. And there was, there was uh, deliberate efforts to um, stamp out people, you know, including the Boers. So, so, so let me, let me use the sort of psychological paradigm rather, because again, you've got, you've got these people that are severely abused, all of them actually. And you, you put them all in, in, in one room together and they spend 48 years oppressing the one group oppresses the other group for 48 years. First, it was the British oppressing everyone. Then the British left because they were like, God, we could, we've had enough of this. And the, the, the Brewers were like, well, we're not going to be oppressed by anybody ever again. And so they oppressed everyone else. Um, mm-hmm. uh, development in this country is a very untold story. It was a very painful process. Um, what do you mean by development? Well, you know, I, I've got a little piece of this in my family because my father came here with nothing from, from World War II. He came here as a, I think it was in his early 20s. All he knew to do was to lay bricks. He was very... Uh, he wasn't educated. Um, uh, he wasn't, uh, 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 what's the word, cultivated. Um, you know, I think when people hear about European um, uh, migrants, Settlers. we have all these images, you know. But actually, yeah, um, in 19, what he landed here, I think in the 50s, he was, uh, he was, he lived in poverty, you know, he was lucky he got given a room by a, by a, a, a Greek construction company and he laid bricks for years. I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but this, this isn't a unique history. This is lots of Europeans and there's a big division and I've written about this as well on my page. There's a big division between the, the whites that were in South Africa before World War II and the whites that came after World War II. The whites that came after World War II were very much second-class citizens. So the Portuguese, the Italians especially, um, were losers of the of World War Two, and we were whether whether we were involved or not doesn't matter. Uh, my dad was head out in the mountains when he was a teenager, but it didn't matter. Um, we were treated badly by most Afrikaners. So I'll accept that there probably was some white privilege because it, ultimately we were white. But um, th- there's nuance in in this whole thing. The the white privilege in apartheid South Africa. Was a was a as it is today was a nepotistic, uh, politically unifying um, elite, which now that I've, I'm starting to use those international words, people start should start making the connection. This is all over the world. When people take power, they create their own little elite and they hold on to power at all costs. The Afrikaners did the, the British did it. The Afrikaners did it, and now. The, the the ANC as a as a as a tripartite uh, alliance um, is is doing the same thing. So um, as I said, we 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 were we were abused. We'd lost all our power. We, in a last ditch effort, handed over the keys to the room, the keys to the house, let's say, and the same thing happened. So that's what we need to question now. We need to deal with that. Um, I don't know if, if that answers what, you, what you're saying. Um, so, 
So let, let's um just for the sake of the, the story, the conditions in which apartheid uh, was created was that there was a power vacuum left by the British. Absolutely, Empire. yeah, yeah. And then filled in by the Boers, and they made a very specific race-based or ethnic-based uh, hierarchy yeah. that's very rigid yeah. and with a very uh, strong dividing line. Very, and yeah. then post World War II, a lot of Europeans come over, um, fleeing uh, the destitution or the decimation of Europe and trying to start over yeah. because maybe they're losers. And they get put in this middle ground where they're kind of padded between. I don't know if this is the proper term, the blacks and the, uh, and the boyer, boyers so the, or, or the whites. The elites middle held, the elite, here. the Afrikaner elites held the strings to state finances and we were quite a wealthy nation. Okay. So the, 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 the laborers and, and some of them were Chinese, some of them were Indian, some of them were Italian. It was a real mixed yeah. bag, but the, the, the yeah. effectively the, the brewers didn't want to rely on the black population so they imported a white population, one that they thought they could oh. deal with, and, and they put them yeah. to work. Um, now, can I just, before we move on, can I just give you one of my theories? And I, I think it's got a lot of evidence, but the people that came after World War II came here from war-torn and, and countries that had survived tyranny, okay? I have a lot of... Um, sort of anecdotal evidence, but I've got a lot of evidence that um, the change that happened in 1994 was driven largely by those people that came here and said, no, we can't be doing this to these other people. Um, so the idea of, if you, if you get where I'm going, the idea of human rights mm. was reborn in World War II and it was exported all over the world into America as well. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't want to talk about America's history because I don't want to um, tread on other people's turf. But it's 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 the idea that a war was fought because these people were oppressing these people, and all those people left, and and yes, they left in, in in as refugees, and they came here with nothing. But gradually, well, let me put it this way: no one in my family supported apartheid. No one, no, and no one that I can remember. Obviously, I was very young. But um, in my circle of friends, no one supported apartheid. No one. Uh, I do know people who supported apartheid. And I, and I, I tend to believe that the real racists, um, a lot of them have already left. I think you, if you look at the, ex, the, the, um, the immigration figures for 1995 and 96, there was a massive immigration of white flight. Um, so I really think a lot of them left. But, but if you get what I'm saying, so the... The South Africa of mm -hmm. the, the 80s and, and ultimately the 90s is, is, is fundamentally a different country to what it was in 1950. And when you, when you go back to H.F. Um, Ravut, who was the, the orchestrator of apartheid, it was a completely different country. It was a Boer country with very few black people, relatively few black people. And these issues just didn't seem that, that important to them. Um, so, obviously, uh, things uh, boiled over and it took a few decades for that, for that change to happen. But I just think it's really important that, especially foreigners, understand that there's a, there's a human rights heart of South Africa, which if you, if you see how we've, how we've come together after this recent spate of looting, that's where it comes from. Those young people 
that are uniting with their neighbors of black, white, Indian, colored, everything to protect their shopping centers and protect their suburbs, those guys are children, many of them are children of refugees of World War II and other countries. Broadly speaking, World War II, World War II or some kind of tyranny or poverty or something. So hmm. the, do you see the, the similarities between South Africa and America? Yeah, yeah. South Africa is a land of opportunity yeah. or, or was, was yeah. at a certain point, but because of some sort of operative uh, and you chalk it up to trauma or abuse or there, there's something there's something wrong in the power structure there that is yet to be changed that keeps on rebirthing itself and reexerting mm. itself. Well, and so in 1994, is that when apartheid was yeah, finished? Yeah, broken. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think I and and there was a what a decade of uh, possibility that, yeah. that opened up a whole bunch of possibility and hope. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and how did that look, start to get organized? Me, reorganized? Without being too dramatic. Um, I was at the union buildings when Mandela was was inaugurated. I count that as one of the most spiritual moments I think anybody could have. It was just hmm. absolute like bliss. Okay. Um, and that carried right through for me. It carried, it carried until Jacob Zuma was elected president. I was, I was, when was that? Um, I think 2009. Just for, um, or a little bit earlier. I think it was, I think it was a little bit earlier, but, um, Ramaphosa has been president for about four years now. Um, and Jacob Zuma was president for about seven years before that. So around about there. Um, but even okay. when they announced him as the, as the, the leader of the ANC and therefore basically the de facto leader of, of South Africa, um, I was horrified because everything we are is, is, it's, he's just a mockery of everything we are. Um, and yes, we lived, uh, you know, if, if you remember when Nelson Mandela um, supported the Rugby World Cup of 1995 um, and we were just united. I, I, I can tell you, I mean, you probably don't know this, but when we won the World Cup, the Rugby World Cup in 1995, Benjamin, uh, the entire country of South Africa was on the street dancing, hugging each other, um, people were giving each other drinks out in, in the street. Uh, I mean, we, I actually got in my car and my ex and I got in the car and just drove around to just absorb this incredible, um, just an abandonment of resentment and of anger and of, of any, you know, and a lot of that it still exists. It's not like it's gone. It's still there. It's just been completely yeah. usurped by the, uh, the, yeah, the, the archetypes that, that, that rule over us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that period from 1995, just broadly yeah. speaking from 1994 to 2009, um, how did the country start to, uh, come together or reorganize itself? Was it a land of opportunity? What was the basic feeling of it? What was the, uh, the MO of the country, South Africa? Okay. So, period? um, to give you an idea, I, I took over my business. Um, well, I, I started my business in 2000. Okay. And between 2000 and probably about 2013 or 14, um, 
my business was very busy and the economy was, was humming, was just bustling. Um, all right. So my disclaimer is I'm not an economist, obviously, but I did own a business and I, I had a sense of what was going on and what the difficulties were. Um, there's a policy that was adopted by Mandela's um, administration that was uh, something called gear. Okay. That was a more open market um, exchange, uh, liberal labor laws, that kind of thing. Okay. We we don't have time now, and this isn't the right forum to go into detail, but generally speaking, there was a different economic policy under Mandela and under Mbeki. Okay. Um, The the Polokwane conference where Jacob Zuma was announced as as the leader, they also adopted NDR, which is what I wrote about in, in my um, article. NDR is the original ANC policy. I think, and again, it is just my opinion as a business owner and as a, as a, you know, a South African citizen, but I think the reason for that was the, 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 in, the internal elite of the ANC saw that there was a lot of wealth coming into South Africa. There was a lot of people that were becoming very wealthy very quickly overnight. And they had a meeting and they said, basically, under the guise of redistribution of wealth, they motivated a change of policy to redirect all that wealth back to themselves and their friends and their family. So black empowerment was reinforced, even though the original constitution said that black empowerment, we we call it uh, BEE in South Africa, black empowerment was supposed to stop after, I think it was 10 years, which is quite common in in countries like us, countries that have major change like this. There's policies of um, indigenous empowerment, which are meant to last a certain period and then end. And you find it in a lot of these countries. As soon as the people get power, they extend it and they extend it and they extend it. And Benjamin, if it's happening all over the world the same way, you have to realize that's what was <laughs> happening here. So it's the same thing. And unfortunately, a lot of South Africans, yeah. are, we're, we're quite a, I don't want to say isolated, but we're quite a focused country. We focus on ourselves. You know, when we go on holiday, we go to Cape Town. Um, obviously, there are wealthier people who go elsewhere. But when we go on holiday, we go on holiday within our country. So very few people have have learned about other countries' uh, dynamics or have traveled to, to many other countries. Um, and obviously, there's a, there's a whole class of black people who maybe only now can afford to leave South Africa, you know. Um, but there was, I mean, look, I saw massive wealth just being spontaneously created in those years up until about, I'd say, 2010, 2012 or so. And that, that wealth was primarily from investment, uh, South Africa in that period of time became a yeah. very uh, filled with potential uh, from an investor's eye yeah. viewpoint. And so a lot of wealth came in there to develop and to create more wealth. Capitalism came yeah. in. And along with that were some uh, in governmental uh, policies that are similar to equity or some version of redistribution. We're not going to call it communism, but some form of enriching a particular class that had been um, marginalized very severely over the course of time. And then to to reinvigorate uh, that, a certain portion of uh, funds were, were funneled that mm. way. 
but just like affirmative action, it was just for getting the that group onto yes. its legs. But <laughs> like it always yes. happens, once that policy of redistribution comes, uh, it's it's like a spigot. And then what you're saying with the reinvigoration or the restarting of the black empowerment movement, the ANC, which I need you to define, decided that that was um, a justified and was already instilled in law or at least in the consciousness to you know, basically declare themselves the redistributors and that funnel is what gets swollen, not necessarily what it's hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So can I add, um, remember that from their perspective, it was working. (laughs) Obviously their friends had Maseratis, you know, Benjamin, I don't want, I don't want your viewers to get confused. When I talk about wealth, I'm talking about serious wealth. I'm talking about multiple large houses with very expensive um, Maseratis, Ferraris. The biggest uh, Porsche dealership is in South Africa, outside of Germany. It's a massive dealership. Hmm. I know the owner, so I know this. Um, You know, I I could give you so many anecdotal, um, well, anecdotal, but things that I know of personally that, that verify things I'm saying. Um, because I've been involved yeah. in, in the, 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 one of the wealthiest areas in South Africa is an area called Bryanston, and I ran a business in Bryanston. Um, and, I, and a lot of my guests were, were wealthy whites and wealthy blacks, some political figures from the ANC. Um, and I had, I had some, you know, very interesting conversations, you can imagine, over a couple of bottles of wine, you know. So I do know these things, and I saw them evolving. And at the time, I didn't think anything of it. I thought it was quite amazing. I thought it was, it was incredible, you know. But the just just to to try to get a foreigner's yeah. consciousness gr- conscious grasp on this. So there's a lot of opulence, but at the same time, South Africa has a extreme poverty. Yeah, there's like like extreme extreme like shacks. Again, most um, so Westerners don't time. understand what we're talking about. Yeah, um, you're talking about like I, I touched on this in in the piece that I wrote, but. You're talking about, at the moment, we've probably got about 70% unemployment between uh, the youth of 19 and 29. Uh, that's a, if you ask me, that's a snippet of what's actually going on because the education levels have just, have just crumbled. There's just, there's, the guys that are coming out of matric, guys and girls that are coming out of matric, they can operate a cell phone, but they can't do much else. I, I've tried to hire these people and... There, you can't. There's certain basic skills that you need mm. to have, um, you know. And then, of course, okay. you know how this clashes with minimum wage and and, and, and uh, many other things. Um, you have someone who um, let me let me give you a scenario. So, it's, imagine a 16 year old boy in the rural area. Keep in mind, a lot of South Africa is rural. Okay, a lot of South Africa is actually unpopulated because there's a desert, but a lot of South Africa is rural. There's only three major cities, really. There's a couple of big cities, but there's only three major cities. So everyone gets drawn to the major cities for work. So if you have, uh, you have a rural area, any rural area, I was going to use a specific example, but actually any rural area where the person in charge is, a, is, a, is a, an appointee of the ANC, uh, he actually has no skills. He or she has no skills. The first thing they do is build themselves a big house, 
build themselves another house or buy themselves another house in, 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 in the center of the city, and they commute up and down, and they attend meetings, and they keep themselves busy. But what they're actually doing is chasing tenders, doing contracts that are, that are lucrative, and, and spending their money, quite frankly. Uh, so the people that live in these districts, and, and this is, I mean, if anyone questions me, please do your research. Go and just, just research poverty in South Africa. You'll get flooded with research that's done by very well-meaning people that come here and do this research in the hope that, that, that their paper will change something. And unfortunately, again, like, like I was saying earlier, you know, we're just, we're just heading on the same diode. We're not, we're not actually addressing the problem. But, but to finish my story, you've got children who live in a, maybe not a mud hut, maybe that's, that's a little bit unfair, but a hut of some kind. It, it, sometimes it'll be built out of cardboard. So yes, sometimes it'll be mud, sometimes it'll be cardboard, sometimes it'll be zinc. Mm -hmm. I don't know if, what you call that in America, like aluminum sheeting. Um, okay. And, but needless to say, running water is not going into individual no. homes. So there is some no. distance to travel. Yes. So for the children walk to collect water. The, the children risk getting yeah. raped on the way or beaten by other kids or, or adults. And when, I, when I say walk, I don't mean walk down the road. I mean walk through the bush to a river that may actually be on the surface dry. So the community digs till they get water. So you, there's videos of this on YouTube. I mean, this isn't the, some sort of secret. So the, those holes have to be maintained because the, the water is coming up from, from underground, okay? That water then has to be boiled. <laughs> they don't have power. <laughs> so they, they have to go and get wood to burn the water that they've collected so that they can drink the water that they've collected. If they don't do that... So they don't even have access to coal no, that's coming in. No. Uh, some sort of distribution. No. Okay. No, I mean... No, no, no... <laughs> so no electricity, no water, and the conditions, the, the sanitary conditions must terrible. be pretty yeah. Yeah. terrible. So the, the feces, where, where do you put all that stuff? And, and then the medical care. So it just time. happens my wife is an epidemiologist and she's written papers on this as well. <laughs> so the disease okay. burden in South Africa is a tragedy. You've got, you've got children who live with Bellasia. They live with it. And it effectively, if they get it very young, which many of them do, uh, there's another disease called brucellosis, which is quite common as well. These things, uh, malaria as well, um, these things stunt their development. So it's not a matter of they get sick and then they get better and then they, go, they carry on with their lives. No, they're permanently stunted. And, it, 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 you know, it may not be physically obvious, but developmentally, they're, they're stunted. So now this poor kid, he's already stunted by nutrition, malnutrition, uh, you've got people who eat maize every day because that's all they can afford. So in terms of nutrition, they're already on the back foot. Their water's polluted sometimes with cholera. Um, the, the awareness of cholera is a lot better than it was even 15 years ago, but nevertheless, it does come back. Um, you know, the guy goes, the, the, this kid now has to go to school after walking two or three kilometers or miles. Uh, miles would be, what would that be? Um about a mile. A, a bit, yeah, a bit less. Mile but and a half, yeah. Needless to say, he's done that before school. So then he goes to school. The school is another mud hut or a zinc building. There are some schools that the government built and even the old government built. Um, but even those are, they're just in a terrible state. Dilapidated. The teachers okay. are completely under, under, underfunded, um, demoralized. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to, you know, I really don't want to, Badmouth my own country, but 
there's just no denying this. And I've, I've done, before my studies, I've had to do the research and it's actually worse than I thought it was. And I live here. It's worse. Hmm. Benjamin, 3.8 million AIDS orphans, thanks to Mbeki's denial of ARVs. 3.8 million. And those kids are in a society where people are so taxed, uh, emotionally taxed. Okay, I don't mean financially taxed. Those kids then go to families that are already on the edge. So the child, in many cases, just becomes a bother or a, or a, or a, a slave. Um, the, the, I, the ILO of, of um, International Lab Organization has done a lot of research on this, and they often release papers where they're trying to impact um, the South African government to, to do something about this. But the South African government goes to the UN and admits that there's, they've tried, and there's only so much they can do. Because ultimately, we've got a government that exists in the cities that has, you know, security and, and buildings and offices and internet and legislation. And in the rural areas, it's, it's, it's non-existent. It means nothing. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, that's so, it. And how do you, yeah, I, I can't imagine the conditions that you would have to set in place in order to change those conditions. Uh, to, to, to a population that's that under the heel of just basic yeah. natural survival, uh, survival yeah. doesn't have the time to develop the no. capacity to be organized enough to establish a government if they don't even have like roads, if they don't have the structure. And if, if every child is emotionally abused, physically and sexually abused, and then uh, physically already stunted uh, by a number of different uh, ailments and etc., then they grow up. How do they have the capacity to start organizing the it's, it's It's just, uh, yeah, and the problem is, um, if you did come to South Africa, if you, well, if you came and visited me, I would show you the real South Africa. But a lot of people come and visit. So if anyone in your audience has, has been here, they come, they land at Orotambo. It's a first-class, world-class airport. They come on the car train. It's a high-speed rail system. It's beautiful. Although if you pay attention when you look out the window, you should be able to see that people are living in poverty even right next to the airport, Okay. And that's nothing like what it is in the rural areas. Like you said, there's some there's areas where there's no roads, you know. So fine, you go on your on your train to to the the um, the mall, Santon Mall, which is very high tech, very fancy. Um, with your exchange rate, you can afford a five star hotel, and then from there you get shuttled off to the Kruger Park, and you go and you see lions and everything, and you leave, and you don't really pay attention to what you see in between because wow, it looks okay. Everyone looks. You know, they look healthy from a distance. They look healthy. But I could point out to you, and I'll give you an example. I did, I did the road the other day to the Kruger Park, our national park. I don't know if you know what that is. The, the national park where most of our animals are. It's a huge region in the eastern area of towards uh, Mozambique. I did the road. There's, there's a couple of gates to this. When I say park, I mean, it's basically, it's bigger than the UK. All right. So it's a massive part of South Africa. Um, one of the gates that accesses this massive landmass, um, it goes through a village. And driving through the village, this was a few weeks ago, I was quite shocked because I've done that road many times in my life. I was quite shocked that there was very expensive cars on the road so mixed, mixed in with the usual poverty. There were very expensive cars on the road and there were some very big houses, okay, um, which is 
initially I was just amazed. I was like, wow, there's like real progress and, and success happening out here, you know. But then amongst all that, I saw something which I know, I know what it is. It was a young girl in, in, in rags with two little boys next to her. The one boy was in the wheelbarrow. And in the wheelbarrow, this is on the side of the road. So amongst all this, this is a very uh, busy uh, village that I'm talking about. It's, I'm a, it's not a rural, I suppose it's technically rural, but it's bustling, all right? And she's pushing a wheelbarrow with wood on it, with dried wood, because her home has no heating. She's not collecting that wood for, you know, sculptures or something. She's literally in the middle of the day yeah. on a random day, like a Thursday afternoon, I think it was, She's pushing wood to her parents' house, or it might be an extended family house. Sometimes there's a lot of people that live together. And it'd be very easy to go down that road and not see the real South Africa, you know, but that's the real South Africa. So to, to bring it to the point that, that um, I don't know if you were about to go there, but when I wrote this, this piece, I was trying to highlight to people that the looters that you see on TV are the people that have nothing left to lose. And after 27 years, they are between nothing left to lose and seeing that things are being given to other people. Uh, look, the, the, the looting did have a political trigger. Uh, Jacob Zuma had his, uh, he's, got, he's got people in the community that, it, that instigated the riots. This is all true. But the analogy I used with someone earlier today was, if, if a drunk person at a campsite drops a match on dry bush, and you know that this is just miles of dry bush, if the drunk guy drops a match and the match catches a light and burns down half the, the, the province, is, you know, do we, do we go and shoot the, the, the camper, the drunk camper? Yes, we can blame him, but the problem is actually the bush. The bush was dry all along. So the instigators mm -hmm. are just opportunists. But ultimately, the bush was dry. These, if you look carefully at those videos, those people yeah. are desperate. They're in rags. They're hungry. There's a lot of them that have cars. I know that. But the ones that are fueling it in between, the ones that provide cover for the other ones that have cars and have SUVs and things, some of them, um, they are the desperate people. And th that's what I want people to see. People need to realize that there's a truth being exposed the underlayer mm -hmm. of, of South Africa that was exposed in these riots that, that immediately, within days, everyone's covering it up. It's instigators, it's political, it's factions. It's No, 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 no. Okay, 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 okay. So this is my question. It's probably like, the, it's probably a some sort of impossible or stupid question, but it seems like there's all this opulence and all this poverty and, it, there's trying to get the money or the resources to the poverty, but something constantly stops that there's, there's what, what is stopping the flow of wealth to engulf the entire population? Well, Why does it stop? That, that conveniently brings us to those, those things that I wrote about in that paper was these policies of NDR of, uh, um, uh, EWC and RET, um, Radical economic transformation is a facade for moving wealth from this group and giving it to these select people. Uh, it can, um, expropriation without compensation is uh, basically legitimizing 
finding any any reason to take land away or buildings or assets. It's not just land from this group and giving it to this select group, all allocated by the ANC. So, so the one another thing that the foreigners need to understand is we don't have a as you do in America, as I understand it, you have a government who are entrenched. They are mostly technocrats. They do their job. All right. We don't have that. The, the, South Africa is run by a cadre system. The cadres all answer to the ANC. There's a few technocrats in between. Yes, people with, with skills that the government needs. But decisions, the key decisions, even at a regional level, are made by cadres who go to meetings, and, and nowadays it's all online, obviously, and they answer to the policies of the ANC. A few select people in the heart of the ANC, our president obviously being one of them. So what you must understand is when I talk about these policies, um, uh, uh, nation, national democratic revolution, which is the, the, the in, as I said in my paper, is originally a Soviet era policy, which was sort of put on the back burner during Mandela and, and Becky's years and then reintroduced under, under Zuma, is in full swing in this country. And the, the effectively, we have, if anyone knows the history of the Soviets, um, uh, heads of their departments and their areas in, in Russia in, when they deposed the czars, it's the same system that we have in South Africa. So all decisions are politically driven, all of them. You have a government which mostly runs the government. But when you're talking about right down to petty legislation, it's driven by political goals. And to the extent that... Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Does that... Was, no, was I answering no, you? Please finish. Um, yeah, no, I, I just... I'm trying to, like, imagine what this system is. So in... In the United States, we have a federal government, which is kind of it's a burden on us, <laughs> but it's staffed by bureaucrats who are more or less competent or efficient. That, and that's a whole question that we're yeah. always wrestling with. How, what do we do with this government? But at least this government has certain standards that it enforces. It has very uh, it has ultimate sovereignty to enforce uh, certain codes of uh, you know cleanliness and uh, I, guess, I guess travel. Uh, and so the government at least is constantly uh, making some sort of standard uh, across the board mm. uh, and whether or not it justifies itself with the bureaucracy. But what you're describing to me is, is a number of different potentiates who have nominal power, kind of like uh, princes or, or uh, like a feudal lord over this land Bingo. and then just makes these edicts, but doesn't actually change the conditions. It, he just has, uh, some sort of so nominal responsibility. We've, we've re... And that person doesn't have to be competent towards actually to making anybody. anything happen. He answers to the guy okay. above him. He doesn't answer to the people below him. Yeah. Yeah, you know, look, on a, on a, on a, on a uh, how can I say, on a realistic level, I suppose he does answer to the people b below him, but there's no mechanism to remove the, 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 the minister of such and such. There's no actual mechanism and the, you know, remember we've got, we've got, we've got traditional leadership structures that are parallel to the government. So you've got traditional leadership, which is a monarchy, right? Uh, those people okay. inherited their position. They're kings, they're uh, landowners, or, or whatever they're tribal landowners. And that, that's, I mean, I, I'm not really sure there's any way to get around that because 
apartheid kind of made that mm. one of their bastions of 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 defense let's say so i'm not saying okay. that, that's how it stabilized yes. itself so okay. i'm not saying that that's okay. um i'm not saying it's wrong but you need to see the conflict of a constitutional democracy supposedly which yeah. is running somehow at the same time with a traditional leadership with kings we've got i think it's 19 kings in this in this region um <laughs> uh, you've got uh, below them you've got chiefs and you can't do anything in that yeah. area without the chief's permission eh there's no like there's no there's no getting uh, around even yeah. if you work for the government okay and and by chief's permission you, you have to basically pay this person off uh, well let me not uh, let me not go there um okay. because sorry for uh, like i said the, the the bastion against uh, apartheid was that was one of them i think there were others but i think that was one of them because they did help organize the community you know so if you think about it if you've got a, a, a if you've got a population that was on its knees due to apartheid the only way that they could act out any social capital was through their leadership and their leadership at least okay. thank god was there and those that were okay. um, you know um, what's the word um, morally justified they acted out against the apartheid government all right so that so that there is that obviously and then you've got the pressure of the ANC in exile and the local um uh, resistance groups there was a lot of resistance within the 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 white community as well so basically the the, the africana um apartheid structure was doomed from all angles um okay but yeah. but but i think that's something you have to understand that you don't have people just misunderstand when the police for example want to enter an area they can't just go in they have to go and ask the, that guy if if they can come in and 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 especially if it's someone that he knows they have to get permission you know and look at I, i i think that could be harmless it could be a very healthy way of 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 uh, encapsulating social cap- capital but the problem is hmm. you you've got two competing systems and no one's achieving anything so the ones okay. extracting wealth out of the, out of the country through mineral resources and the, the ANC um I, i wanted to say something earlier about that that period between uh, mandela and mbeki you know i i have to say i think a lot of the success of south africa was was just like pure goodwill it was just in the air so if if an investor or um you know an ngo or something like that landed here it was just yeah wow let's do something here this is just um, exciting and it's beautiful and everyone's friendly and we we traditionally a very friendly nation um but yeah. when you drain away that goodwill and this is this is where i feel we are now is that goodwill has been completely usurped by the ANC and you've got nothing left and the evidence on the ground is the looting that we've seen but no one else is investing in south africa either it's not it's not like it's yeah. it's not like the ones going on and the other isn't going on in your article which is an excellent Thank article you. and it yeah. uh, kind of came to the four because of the looting and the riots and then the west trying to make sense of that and you're like well I'm here you tell the story yeah. you make a parallel between the the rhetoric of the ANC and the BEE and 
critical race theory. Uh, you say that there's something similar going on. And I'm wondering if you're comfortable or you're able to kind of explain that rhetoric, that racial rhetoric, and what it's used for and what it could possibly benefit, if, if there's any benefit to that, or how it went awry, or how it will ever resolve anything. So what is the kind of the, the official uh, racial rhetoric? And mm. to what degree do different people take it seriously? Well, well, let me start with take it seriously. You've got no choice but to take it seriously. Um, and I, and I, I'm, I'm going to, I really, I, I I feel bad doing this on your your beautiful podcast um, and and YouTube channel, but there's a there's a story that illustrates this perfectly, which I physically experienced myself in January of this year. Um, I won't give you the whole scenario, but effectively, I was trying to salvage one of my branches, one of my restaurants. Okay, and I was physically there. Um, doing things to try and get it re to reopen, okay, after lockdowns and all that. And long story, but basically there was a, there was a black guy there who had, was, was under the pretense of fixing something. He was kind of camping out there and was doing drugs, which I didn't know, okay. He was, I don't know what he was doing, but he was doing something probably quite potent. Anyway, we got into an altercation. He was trying to steal stuff, and, and my staff came and asked me, to get him off the property, basically, because they, they were scared that because they could see that he was he was active, you know. Anyway, long story short, I confronted him. We got into a tussle. Uh, I got hurt. Um, I, luckily, there was security nearby. They intervened. Um, they they asked me, "Do you want to lay charges?" Uh, because I was assaulted, um, and I said, "I said no, it's fine. Um, I, I, you know, it, it wasn't that bad, um, but it." But it was the thing is, if the situation was slightly different, I probably would have died because he was he was armed, <laughs> he was armed with a shank basically, and it was only because I managed to defend myself quite well that I wasn't stabbed to death, okay, in front of my staff, in the day, in broad daylight. The point I'm getting to, sorry, I know this is a, a harsh story, but the point I'm getting to is, the security asked me, do you want to lay charges, and I said no. The security said to me. Um, the security was a bunch of black guys as well. The security said to me, you probably shouldn't because it won't go anywhere because he's already used the race claim, okay? Which I didn't know that because they'd spoken to him and he'd already said that man's a racist. Um, mm -hmm. Then when I phoned a, a policeman who I know and I said, look, I just don't want this to, to backfire on me. What is the right thing to do? And he said to me, don't lay charges, because if you lay charges, he's going to claim racism. And the first thing they do is arrest me. <laughs> so I would have spent a night in jail and I would have had to fill out a form that basically defends my, my position that I didn't commit any kind of racism. And then to be sure, I found an attorney and got advice from the attorney and the attorney said the same thing. So it's a bit of a brutal example, but in that story is the fact that in America, you've got CRT, which is in an intellectual way, trying to tell white people to take a back seat because of their privilege, okay? Benjamin, I, at that moment that me and this guy had a confrontation, I was trying to save 20 people's jobs, black people's jobs. And I was doing it 
pretty much single-handedly against all odds. The lockdown in South Africa was quite extreme. Um, it, 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 had a, it had a massive impact. It was quite extreme and there was no help from the government. There was no help from the government because there's a BE policy in the loans, the, the, the state uh, bailout loans were allocated to black companies only. And our president said this on TV. Okay. It wasn't like it was a, a secret. This is policy. Yeah. Okay. So you're talking about yeah. critical race theory as an intellectual exercise. And I know that a lot of it's coming, um, becoming very serious now in, in America as well. But you've got to, that's why I said, I'm, I, I wrote that sentence clearly. South Africa is a CRT state. It literally is. From day one, we had policies entrenched that give uh, funds, uh, privileges, access, which I had no problem with at the time in 1994. And even in 2010, I had no problem with. Um, the reality is in South Africa, when those policies came in, a lot of white people just started their own business. They started like, like I did. Um, although I was, I was already in the restaurant business. I, I'm, I've, I've always been a cook and uh, that's, that's my mm -hmm. uh, passion. For the, well, it has been for that part of my life. Um, so I'm not saying that, I, that I'm literally one of those people, but a lot of South Africans started, you know, small businesses, plumbing businesses, um, web design businesses, that kind of thing, because they were basically pushed out of the, the, the corporate and, and company and, uh, sorry, and state employment. All right. Um, and the, and the, the state employment is probably the state owns a lot of really yes. big businesses well you can't do anything there's a lot of socialized because businesses. a lot of the funds and it's it's escalated over the years because it's such a lucrative uh, way to enrich yourself a lot of things go through the state and whatever you do in your company is governed by legislation anyway so it's not like you can if you start a very small business like i did you you, you don't get their radar but as soon as you get bigger you're on the radar and you're subject to all sorts mm -hmm. of things and when we talk about uh, expropriation without compensation, that's been done through the labor laws as well. So there's, I won't bore all of you with, with the details, but effectively there's mechanisms within the legislation that if, if the business is white owned, it's already on the back foot of, of any kind of defense. You have to, if you want to defend yourself, you have to get a lawyer, you, you get drained by the lawyer. If your business isn't big enough, you're already on the brink and you close down. Um, Subnote: Lawyers, do they have to be black? Can can a white lawyer? Yeah, that can, uh, no, do that anything can be. The... That can be either. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. But but <laughs> yeah, let me. Let me I, I don't want to slip into sort of conspiracy stuff. You know, that, that let's stick to the things that anyone can research. Um, yeah. Okay. But suffice yeah. to say, there's no doubt that if you don't have um, black partners, um, so many black staff, um, et cetera, et cetera. You're, you're not doing anything in South Africa. So all the big banks are, of, are, over the years have, have become fewer. They basically don't hire white people anymore. I'd say the last, I mean, I know people who work in the banks. I'd say the last 10 years or so, uh, white people just don't get hired in, 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 in the banks, definitely, because they're very tied to the state. So keep in mind, obviously, the state can just with a stroke of a pen cause a lot of headaches for the banks. Um, and that, that threat has been made publicly on TV. It's not like it's, again, it's not like it's under the carpet. 
So, so to bring it back to, to the difference between South Africa's uh, policies and, and, and critical race theory in, in America is the stated goal is to reverse racism, right? Is to reverse policies that previously benefited a certain group and now they're going to benefit another group. Okay, I think in America, you've, you've got a, a really tragic scenario because the, those policies weren't actually um, in legislation. In South Africa, we've got, and I, I, don't wanna, I don't want people to think that I'm saying there's no racism in, in America or South Africa. There, obviously, there is. And I understand, I do understand the concept of um, implicit bias and, and, you know, just unintentional racism. I accept that. I, I, I won't argue that. But I have to point out again that in South Africa, you have 48 years of racism against the rest of the population entrenched in power, in enforcement and in legislation openly. The signs were everywhere. Blacks there, whites there. In South Africa... Um, in 1994, you see, it wasn't done immediately. It was done very quietly and very gently. And, and the people that, that met, we, we had a multi-party conference that led up to the presidency of, of Mandela. And all of this was discussed. The constitution was agreed on. Policies were negotiated. And these things were accepted. And BEE was supposed to be phased out because everyone accepted that it wasn't a viable long-term solution at the time. There were many people involved in what we call CADESA, the, the negotiations that happened before 1994. People knew, they were very intelligent people, they knew the history of other nations, and they knew that if we don't get rid of these uh, um, uh, redistribution policies over a certain period, it's going to fuel more racism. They knew that. And you can go back to the records mm -hmm. for CADESA uh, 19, I think it was between 1992 and 1994. They knew this was discussed openly. And here we are, 27 years later, we've gone through one of the worst corrupt presidents in Africa. He was eventually ousted. Ramaphosa replaces him. Ramaphosa is the, the, the Pied Piper, smiling and greeting everybody all humbly and everything. But he's the Pied Piper. He's leading us all off the cliff. So I just want to make that difference very clear. In America, um, as I understand it, it's not entrenched. It, I know it was in, you know, maybe up until the 60s where you had Jim Crow laws and all that kind of thing. But in South Africa, it was all right up until 1994. And then it was switched. So when, when you see me as a white man saying we basically live in an unfair society, we're not a free and fair society. We might be mostly free, but we're certainly not fair. I'm talking 27 years into a, a, an incredible high that we had. Um, so any resistance to it, you're up against the courts, the police, attorneys, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're up against everybody else. It's not like it's a, hmm. you're not having a theoretical discussion here, you know. Um, in, in America, you guys, I think one of your problems is that they don't really have a target to fixate on, um, which is why when there's an incident, you all focus on this incident. In South Africa, it's just, it's, it's all over the place. It's not, it's not a mm. subtle thing. It's very obvious. So, look, I, I don't want to paint, paint a, um, a wrong image of South Africa. A lot of white people have carried on um, uh, the distribution of, of the nation's GDP has, as I mentioned in my paper, has 
reduced towards the whites and increased exponentially to, towards the blacks, which is probably fine. Um, but when you see it in context of the looting, you suddenly realize that, yes, that may be true. The wealth has gone to the same group, the same group. So if anyone's a fan of Marx, you know, Marx spoke about those fixed categories of rich, middle class and poor. All right. That's what we're actually creating in South Africa. So think about that. Mm-hmm. We, 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 we hand it over to a, basically a socialist organization. Uh, let me, like you said, let me cl- clarify what the ANC is just now. But we hand it over to a socialist organization that had lots of very clever and intellectual ideas. And what they did, I, I would say almost against their will as a, as a group, the individuals that saw the opportunity have kept that power to themselves and you've, you've got now a fixed elite class, mostly the continuously poor, which are the people that were rioting last week. And, in, and they, they are very much in certain districts because they're not, uh, I don't want to fuel um, the language here, you know, mm. but um, let, let me put it this way. The, there are no Zulus in the top six of the, in East, of the, the command council of South Africa. Okay, so the Zulus are deliberately excluded. Uh, and it's been a while. It's been like that for a while. Nelson Mandela was a causer. Uh, Ramaphosa is a vendor. A lot of people in the ANC are causer uh, or vendor. So there's a and that 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 uh, disparity has been brewing for a few years now. And people are aware of it. Mm-hmm. So when you see people, mm-hmm. the few that did protest for Zuma, that's why they're, pro- they're not actually protesting for the man. They're protesting for the idea that Zulus have no power in the government. Okay. So uh, okay. to answer so, that thing that you said about the ANC, um, to be clear, I did say it in my paper, but the ANC is a tripartite alliance of the Communist Party, literally, <laughs> the unions, all the big unions of South Africa. So Labour communists and the original liberation organization, the ANC. That is what runs South Africa at the moment. So just get your head around that. (laughs) How do you run a country with socialists, the union, and liberators? With a constitutional government and then a bunch of uh, competing landed monarchies on top of that, and then a bunch of foreign investment coming through. How? It's such a complex thing. But what I was, uh, I want to just kind of try to conceptualize is that officially on paper and then in effect through policy, the there has been a discrimination uh, against white uh, people for black people. But what that is in effect done is caused entrepreneurial whites to have a very difficult time to actually enrich black people because it has to go through the arm of the state. Exactly. So, and, and things are so uh, stacked against these white investors or entrepreneurs that they'd rather just serve themselves and entrench themselves in, a, in, in the middle class or serving the, the upper class. That entire infrastructure, though it's based on race, is not actually doing what it's supposed to do and distributing to the poor. It's distributing to an elite black uh, 
kind of cadre. And within the entire black population, there are a number of different competing mm. Um, mm. groups mm. that are now because you know, there's just if you absent the whites from the conversation, then the blame would be on the elites in the black. So are the elite blacks like actually using the whites or the white anti-white rhetoric uh, or CRT as a shield to cover uh, absolutely. for their ineffective absolutely for actually dealing with the problems that they're supposed absolutely. to Absolutely. Um I I want to I want to just backtrack a little bit and I I I'm sorry if I've yeah kind of led you into that. Um no, 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 and please correct me. And I'm, I'm doing all these yeah. terms. I don't like thinking racially, but yeah. trying you, to suss out the nuances. So pre- you must understand. Bring as much yeah. nuance. South as Africa possible. is actually a very, very multicultural country. So I've done business with. Yeah, not to mention the Chinese and the exactly. Indian groups. I've done which business are very, with very Indians, large, yeah. Congolese people, Angolan people, people from the UK, everyone. Okay. Um, okay. But your one point there that you said that the, the, the state makes it difficult for not just whites. It makes it difficult because a lot of business owners are Indians who came here over the, as I said earlier, over the generations. So that you were talking about generational Indians. Yeah. And now recently a lot of Chinese people, a lot of Congolese people, but they are limited by the by all those laws so you know we, we don't want to get boring but all the laws that are there that are open they're there um which is basically if you want to do anything you have to find a contact in the government or in the anc either or is fine basically because the one will have the other and um then you get you get allocated a deal you do a little partnership with this person this person will have multiple partnerships in multiple companies and all of a sudden, you'll, you'll secure a deal. That person will take a certain percentage for effectively doing nothing. And, and you'll go off and do the contract. Problem is, what happens very often, and again, this is in the media. This isn't like I'm making this up. The, the person who's now being given the contract doesn't have enough money to do the contract. So they run out of money. They mm. go back to the person and they say, look, I can't finish the contract. They get sued by the state. Then if you get blacklisted, you can't open another company. Oh, so do geez. you see how okay, wow. the mechanisms are at work all along the way? And God help you, if you fire someone who's local, you'll get dragged to the labor courts and you'll be ruined. Because the labor court has um, a disproportionate power to the, the other court. They basically have the same power as the high court. Um, so someone in the labor court, if you don't respond to a couple of notices, next thing you know, you've got someone attaching your assets which has happened to me. <laughs> so you must understand the, 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 those things that I spoke about, um, radical uh, uh, economic transformation is entrenched in, in laws, in, in legislation, in every sector. Um, expropriation without compensation. The big issue at the moment is land expropriation without compensation, which is sitting in parliament. But actually it's been going on all along. Because okay. if yeah. you expropriate okay. my company... And I don't get any compensation. Uh, what do we call that? Yeah. It's redistribution of yeah, wealth. Property. And it, that's what brings yeah. me back to the, the motivation for all of that is, is effectively the same as CRT. Whereas critical race theory sounds like an intellectual argument. As soon as you accept that intellectual argument, you start implementing policy. And when you implement policy, 
you effectively do exactly everything we've just spoken about. You draw power to the center, the center retains power, and everyone else can go to hell. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so, <laughs> okay, this is a big it's mess. Tough, I know. How do you fix it? <laughs> How do you fix it? Well, what do you think is going to have to happen in order for the conditions to come about for the fix to be Benjamin, made? Benjamin, there's, there's no, there is no getting around. And I've, I've thought about this from, a, uh, from an economic perspective, from a psychology perspective, from a, lots of different perspectives. There's no getting around that the ANC as an organization is rotten. It, it's, unfortunately, that rot is rooted in the government. So we've got a huge problem. And I, I, I'm not, I didn't come on your show to actually provide solutions, but I can... I can, I know, yeah, I, I can. I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but I'm just trying to end on a hopeful I know, note. I know. The, the thing I think is gradually happening um, is that the ANC will eventually um, lose power and be pushed out. And they'll be forced into some sort of, um, look, hopefully they'll be pushed out altogether. Um, to be honest, if, if any of them had any conscience, they would actually disband the ANC. Because those were proposals that were made back in 1994, because, again, many intellectuals knew and, and many within the party knew. And some of them spoke up and said, as a liberation organization, we are not geared to run a country, to be government. Those are mm. two different things. Okay. People said it, they yeah. were overridden. Um, look, yeah. there might have been reasons at the time. We were quite unstable at the time. There was threat of civil war and there was some things that, again, I wasn't in the room, so I'm not sure exactly what the reasons were. But here we are 27 years later, and you've got a liberation organization of, of aging kleptocrats. Of liberating of people liberating, of property. Exactly, for themselves and their children, you know. Yeah. And you've got um, yeah. other parties who don't stand a chance. And that was the other point that I made in that paper was the difference between South Africa and other countries is the the, we are effectively a single-party state. So until that party gets, gets dismantled, you're not going to have – so the irony is a lot of the language that the, um, uh, you know, the postmodernists use uh, at the back end of CRT is actually quite relevant in South Africa. We need a revolution in South Africa, and we do need the people to rise up the way they did. Uh, unfortunately, it was directed at looting, but we do need some kind of grassroots – um, uprising to either make the ANC develop a conscience or to push them out altogether. There's, the problem is there is a threat of, of an even more radical left wing uh, in, a, in another party that's got a lot of support. But I think generally speaking, South Africans, Mandela is actually still there. Um, so the idea of Mandela and, and a rainbow nation is actually still there. So it's kind of like if the ANC would just get out of the way, we would all be fine because the goodwill that I see amongst pretty much everybody, everybody, even foreigners, even people that have just arrived, the goodwill to make South Africa something and to recover that dream of a multicultural country mm. is still there. Mm. And you can see it, as I said, you can see it in the way communities have come together during this last spate of looting. Um, but 
Could you could you speak about that? How did communities come together? Uh, I, I've seen footage, but uh, yeah. defending property. But was there anything other than just shooting guns at well, looters? Like, no, was, was there positive? Of, um, look, it was happening even in my neighborhood. Um, the The general idea was, no one's going to come help us. We we it's actually on the one hand it's a tragedy because everyone within two or three days the whole country realized that we're not led, <laughs> that the state is incompetent. And if we're going to defend our shopping malls and our homes and our businesses, we're going to have to get help and we're going to have to help each other. So it took mm. a few days. Look, I think in some regions it happened overnight uh, because some regions have been warned and been preparing for this for many years. Um, look, Benjamin, it doesn't, it doesn't take a scientist to figure out that there's thousands of people living over the ridge just over here, not in my area, but in, in most areas. Just over the ridge, you've got thousands. If you look at a map of, of any city in South Africa, it's unfortunately, it's apartheid planning. You've got, well, look, a lot of cities develop this way anyway, but apartheid planning had townships with access to the rural areas and the cities where the whites lived who didn't need access to go anywhere because they lived in the city, right? So that's just expanded now. So when you've got a city like Durban, which is surrounded by rural areas, a lot of them living in poverty. Look, again, like I said, there are areas that are that are growing. So I don't want to give you a picture of mm -hmm. the whole of South Africa's mud huts okay. and zinc shacks. No. Um, but yeah. generally speaking, the disparity is obvious. I think a lot of your viewers will probably see those photos of, you know, the two different South Africas. Um, unfortunately, the truth is that is Africa. A lot of that is a developing nation. It's not unique to South Africa. Um, and the, the assumption is that in that developed part, uh, just over the wall, it's all white people. No, it's not. It's very much a mixed community. Um, but the fact is, that thread of um, integrity and hope runs in all of us. And as soon as the, the, what we have built is threatened, we reach out just automatically to each other. Um, so let me say something that is optimistic. I really think that most South Africans don't see the color of the skin. They actually see character. So, when we hire people. Well, you kind of have to when you're working together. You kind of just you have do. to. Yeah, of course you do. But we know that CRT wants us to do the opposite. And, and no good will come from it. Trust me. Because what the, <laughs> the defense of certain regions that happened in, and, and if, you, if, if your viewers um, do any research, they must make sure to, to research so Soweto, uh, Maponyana Mall, which was defended by black people working with the police. They were heavily armed. They were shooting back at other black people who were trying to get in and, and ransack the mall. That mall is owned by a billionaire. He's passed away now by a billionaire, Mr. Maponyana. Um, and then there's, there's other footage, which unfortunately looks really bad because it's Indian people. Although, if, you see, I know the details of those scenes. They're not just Indian people. Mm -hmm. There's Indian people mixed with... Um, Pakistani people mixed with Muslim people. So when you look at those images, you must, you must switch off your own racism and realize that those are South Africans. We're a multicultural nation. And there might be one white guy in that crowd, but more than likely the leader of that group 
is an Indian or even a black person. And the reason they're doing that is because they know that there's jobs at stake, that there's businesses at stake. And the few that did defend the, the malls that, that exist, the shops and the suburbs that exist, they, if, if you watch those interviews, they say, we're trying to protect people's livelihoods. Where are they going to get food? There's going to be a huge crisis in, in certain areas because nobody can get food. We're shipping, my college next week is shipping like a whole truckload, I think it's five tons of bread to the next province, to KwaZulu-Natal. That's, that's where we are today, hmm. you know? So, yeah, so the, the, it seems like a ray of hope that chaos caused by the failures of the state is the opportunity for the people of the state yes, to actually exactly, exactly. Th they're ready to Very help perceptive. each other they're yeah. ready to work out they're ready to survive but that oppressive government that was created with these high ideals that unfortunately have something very similar to crt or some sort of racism baked in and then all the corruption the nepotism the anti-meritocracy the incompetence yeah. once that structure finally is broken S south africa is ready to fill to the gap to re be absolutely. reborn. To be reborn. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I see evidence of that in my own community. Um, the, uh, just to give you a bigger picture, go back to what I said earlier about the types of people that overthrew the apartheid government. It was people in exile. It was blacks within South Africa. It was um, activists. It was NGOs. And it was the people of South Africa. Indians, whites, everybody. We overthrew, there was an election in 1992 where I was too young to vote, but we all voted for change during apartheid. We voted for change. It was unanimous. I think it was 68% voted for change, much to the surprise of many people because people didn't realize that. And that vote was only white, eh? white, uh, white and whoever the, the, the previous government allowed to vote. Um, so, so what I'm just trying to give you a picture of is if I'm telling you there's hope now, it's not something that's just come out recently under threat of, of communism. <laughs> you know, no, it's been there all along. And it's, a, it's actually the other way around. It's the ANC that's, that's as I said, in the way that's, that's, that's um, repressing the goodwill of the people. Um, the, the, the liberators are the oppressors. The, the, the natural, <laughs> um, the organic sense of... Uh, helping our community and empowering people and training people that happens without the state's involvement is there. It's, it's been there. I would argue that is, is exactly why we changed in 1994 is because that organic sense of justice is amongst all of us and, and probably has a lot mm -hmm. to do with our parents, but our parents' experiences. But I, I don't want anyone to think that that's somehow been uh, destroyed by these policies that say, look, it's still the whites, it's still the whites, it's still the whites. Because now the, the, the opportunists are blaming the Indians. There's a, there's a, there's a um, I don't know if you've seen that. Really? Oh, yes. There's a, there were calls on Twitter. I mean, all you've got to do is um, search South Africa Indians. And on Twitter, there's calls for genocide of the Indians. And that's all over Twitter. It's not like it's hidden. I was quite horrible. Again, again, the the mask of racial rhetoric and CRT or in any of these programs is always masking hatred of competence. It's it's yes. always masking whoever's doing well in life 
It's it's more about resentment yes. than anything yes. else. It's not actually but look built. At, look at what in, this ties yeah. back to what we were saying earlier. Look at who was calling for that. People sitting in their comfortable homes on an iPhone. Oh, we should go and get them. <laughs> the people didn't do that. The people got in their cars and went and looted TVs and fridges and, and, and food. No one did that. So you've got one South Africa. So even the people calling for division are still the elite. They are the elite because the people on the mm -hmm. ground, they understand that we need each other. You know, the Indians in, in, in Natal, um, I think there's 1.8 million Indians in Natal. They've brought massive skills. They've set up businesses. They run farming. They work hand in hand with black people all the time. And uh, the, the, the Zulus also work with the, the Afrikaner people in KwaZulu-Natal all the time. This is stuff that goes on all day. And I just want to point mm. out that the intellectual class on Twitter who have safety, who have data, you know, and, and fancy phones are tweeting that we must get revenge. And the people ignored them. So, yes, mm. there are instigators. I know mm. there's, there's a whole big thing about certain yeah. people in, in yeah. Zuma's faction. But like I said, we're picking on the drunk mm -hmm. camper who, who dropped a match. You can't pick on him. You have mm -hmm. to ask yourself, why was the grass dry in the first place? And no one wants to ask that mm -hmm. question, you know, because the answer is awkward. The answer is years of neglect. The river is right there. Yeah. You know, if you get, I'm speaking metaphorically, the river is right there. Yeah. The ground is dry. And we're going, I just want to build one little aqueduct coming into this dry air. No, you can't do that because it's not your land. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, mm. it's a complete uh, denial of quite basic things, basic needs. There's a need there. I know how to do it. I can work with them to do it and we'll do it. I mean, my business, just a, just a quick, because uh, uh, I know we're getting late now, but um, my business there's, there's a perception that restaurants make a lot of money and that, that's actually not true. Restaurants don't make a lot of money. Some restaurants do. But I ran a business which my policy in my business for 21 years was to deliberately hire unskilled and young people. So when you're talking about unskilled in South Africa, you're talking about some of them can't write. They can't write, okay? Don't ask them to do maths. Um, I would hire those people and I would put them in a certain position and train them up from that position. So over those 21 years, I literally hired people with no skills, gave them skills, and they moved on to better, bigger and better jobs, okay? And I've got some incredible success stories. Uh, Benjamin, this is the wonder of, of, of South Africa. The one guy was a, uh, a, a car guard. I don't know what you call them in America, but the guy that guides your car in the parking lot, okay? You probably don't have them in America, hmm. but in South Africa, they're all over the place. He was a car guard, <laughs> And he very eloquently nagged me every day for a job. And I realized the one day I'm kind of writing him off because he's a car guard. And I'm like, but that's stupid, you know? So the one day we were really busy and I called him in and he started helping. And I'll cut a long, wonderful story uh, short. <laughs> but him and I are like this now, okay? We're, we're brothers. Um, he is on the board of an insurance company in Angola as we speak. Because he got hired by a big bank in my restaurant because he worked in my restaurant. He got trained in all sorts of economic policies. 
And he realized he had all these skills that don't exist in Angola. So he went to Angola and started a small insurance company and he got bought out by a multinational. So now when I see this guy, to, to be fair, it's 20 years later, uh, but when I see him the last yeah. 10 years, he invites me to the, to the five-star hotel in the center of town and, and I, he buys me lunch. That's South Africa. Huh. And I can give you other stories yeah. like that. That's not the only one. There's lots of other stories. Yeah, yeah. That's the potential. That mobility, that, that potentiality, that harnessing the potential of human capital exactly. is through the entrepreneurial spirit rather than the redistributive exactly. Exactly. Uh, justice There's a spirit. misconception, I think. Uh, entrepreneurs are often misunderstood. We're not out there to be, be billionaires. A lot of us are not. A lot of us are driven out of corporate because we have a higher moral goal. We want to see people succeed. So one of my, um, I'll, I'll say two, my two uh, rewards in my business was providing a place that was family friendly, that was comfortable, that people were treating each other with respect and everybody was enjoying the food. And, you know, like most restaurateurs, um, and, and, and I would see them the next day, literally. I had the, the kind of restaurant that I just knew everyone. Everybody would, some people would come three or four times a week. It would get a bit weird sometimes because you know everything about their lives, you know. <laughs> but on the other hand, you've got, you've got people that, as I say, that walk in off the street and then three years later, they walk out into a completely different reality. You know, some of them were hired by, 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 by my guests, very often, and I would always encourage it because I, I thought that was a wonderful thing. Um, because, you see, the entrepreneur can um, spread the skills that you encapsulate, you catalyze, okay? You, you catalyze these skills, you spread them with the people that are prepared to learn and prepared to listen and prepared to be patient. And then the client sees that and he assumes that this success is embodied in this person. Okay, but actually you've catalyzed some of your success to that person. And, mm -hmm. and therefore, and I mean, this, has happened, this was happening sometimes three or four times a month in my business, that that person that get, gets hired based on what they took from me, from our, my business. And that was just incredible. And, you know, obviously yeah. on the other hand, then I had to hire someone else and start all over again. But yeah. <laughs> but each time I did it, I saw this potential coming in. And look, it didn't always go well. Yeah. Sometimes it was a disaster. Yeah. Um, but I'd say 70% of the time it actually did go well. And uh, my staff, even towards the end, I mean, one of the reasons they were so upset that we were closing was, um, so we did close down eventually. Um, there was just no um, flogging a dead horse, you know, no support from from anyone, basically, from banks, from the state, from anything, and it was just, um, it was just pointless. Um, but look, it did coincide with my own change in my own life, so I'm not bitter about it. I'm just sad that that construct that I just told you about, that died. Mm -hmm. um, that's sad, because in actual fact, the, the idea that you can um, create this place where skills are self-generating and people can come and go out of that skills development business um, with very little pressure on any individual, actually. Um, I mean, for many of those years, my business kind of ran itself. Um, I mean, obviously, I did work and I put effort into it. But that, that model that I built was self-fulfilling because 
I didn't have to motivate people to be loyal and to do their job. They, they just did it because they would come in and they would hear about the other guy who just left and got a better job somewhere else. You see? So yeah. I just want to make it clear that I think entrepreneurs in general, but my attitude to that is not unique to me in South Africa. Most people I know are trying to do the same thing and make a living at the same time, of course, as well. And as you say, and you did, I'm glad you put it, I'm glad it came from you because we're all trying to do this and we just get hammered from the state above because the state is terrified that one little little uh, vein of success will escape their grip. And, and as soon as they see that vein, they camp down in it as well. You know, so farmers are making a lot of money because they're exporting a lot of wine and a lot of fruit out of South Africa. So what do they do? They introduce EWC uh, expropriation without compensation. So they'll find a way to come and take your land, basically. And there's, I mean, there's cases of it happening where the farmer has been possibly three or four gen generations on the land. Uh, okay, yeah. let, me, let me stop there because that can be a misleading thing. Actually, most farm owners right now paid for their land. Okay, so I was going to give you the sad version of a, of a generational farm that then gets taken away. But those are quite rare, actually. If you look at the stats, most farms are paid for. There's title deeds printed in the last 27 years. They own the land and a lot of them are black. Okay, so when you talk about expropriation without compensation, you must understand that the, the leadership in the ANC will take land from anyone, Indian, black, or white, and which they have done, actually, already, under, under other circumstances. And the state-owned farms, because ultimately we revert back to a socialist system that they're trying to instill in South Africa, which is state-owned land, state-owned companies. Our electricity companies are a complete disaster. I'm sure you've heard about our, our rolling blackouts in South Africa. Um, our water utilities are very often uh, either not functional or underfunded. Uh, as the state-owned enterprises are a catastrophe on a on 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 a on a just another level. Um, and 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 the state can't not want to expand itself, even though it's not doing good with what it already no. is. And nobody how do you, can stop how it. Do you, you know, how do you detach the? If I can go back into that that psychology language, you know. When you've created a dependency, how do you detach the dependent without pain? You know, whether it's physical pain or psychic pain, there's some kind of pain going to be involved. And that's what a lot of us are saying about these riots, that we need to recognize this is the attempt for South Africa to pull the dependents off the, the, the main body that is South Africa. You know, um, so it's it just, you know, if, if, if anything... I want people to understand that it's not just criminality. Uh, one of the most disgusting things I saw recently the last few days was South Africans causing, calling looters barbarians. Um, I find that just absolutely disgusting, that even as a South African, you revert back to your moral judgment to defend your brain from accepting the reality that we're living in a country that creates those people. It creates the the vulnerable, the impoverished, the desperate, to the point that you've got, you've got old women risking being shot with a rubber bullet, which can kill you, just to get a bag of maize. I mean, think about it, uh, Benjamin. It's, it's not, this isn't, 
esoteric stuff I'm talking about here, you know? Yes, there was a lot of manipulation and there were people there were people pulling up with Mercedes Benzes and looting stores on camera. I mean, it just boggles the mind. Mm-hmm. But but that's just mm-hmm. one little part of what was actually going on, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I, again, I don't know what your question, original question was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, I, I don't want to... Um... <clears throat> extend the uh, attention of the audience yeah. uh, beyond this point. So this was one of the most fascinating conversations I've had oh, thanks. in yeah. such a long time. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed of your own perspective and your own, uh, I guess, your values that you were doing with your restaurant, and now you're going on to psychology. So I know that you're, you're reinventing yourself yeah. as we speak. And so with that out there what are you working on now how can people get connected with you your work and keep tabs on on your growing thought and your lens into south africa uh well i yeah i do have a wordpress page um that i've, I've put some stuff on uh, my my wordpress page is psych like psychology uh it's a p-s-y-c-h uh, kitchen i kept the kitchen part <laughs> um <laughs> I just, I just, I couldn't let it go. You know, the idea of, of cooking up uh, progress, you know, um, I couldn't let it go. I, I, I sort of put it on the screen and I was like, I shouldn't, but I can't let it go. It's, it's part of me, you know? Um, and then on Twitter, um, I call myself Vincent Psych ZA as well. Um, so I, yeah, I've got a, a, quite a lot of material on Twitter that I, that I share that links back to the page. Um, and then I, I try, if, if, if people are interested, I try and keep it within the bounds of everything I've just said. I, I, I don't go into politics specifically. I try and keep it within psychology. Um, I try and work with the, like we've kind of summarized if you can summarize it in two hours you know we've i think we've done a pretty good job of that we've we've come back to the fact that there's energy in all of us that's untapped and it's the it's the it's the forces external to us that oppress that energy and and that's what makes us you know even in a in a psychology counseling perspective it's people who are who are blocked who, who come for counseling, you know, they're blocked in various ways. They haven't uh, actioned the next level in their life, you know. Um, and, and we need to understand that as, as people, as groups, inevitably we'll form groups, but even between groups, we all have that energy and that's what we should be looking at and we should be talking about and how can we open those doors and share that energy with each other. So it's an exchange that we should be doing that's 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 um, filled with potential, rather than constantly picking out on the on the, the the trivial things which are really there just to distract us, you know. And I know a lot of people understand this about social media today. Thank God we've all started to understand how social media manipulate us. But um, but we we need to go now to the next level. It's all good and well to recognise mm-hmm. that social media is a is a uh, you know, a corporate system that's designed to bleed us dry, but we need to accept that that's happening between us as well, you know, and, and your kind of podcast 
and the, the, the long form podcast in general is recapturing all that energy and bringing it out for people to see because you can sit and you can look at me talking about something in detail and you can get a feeling of what I'm, what I'm about, whereas a tweet is what? It's your toenail, you know? It's, it's, it, it's a toenail <laughs> of a human being, you know? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Vincent. I'm going to wrap up the podcast, and uh, I, I'm just deeply grateful for your voice and, and for you giving me your time and, and sharing your story and your uh, knowledge. Yeah, and I'm, I must say, I'm, I'm, I'm very humbled by um, your attention and, and, and one or two other people from overseas because – like I said to you in my message when I replied to you, um, I think most South Africans feel like we've just been forgotten, like we're a, a disappointment to the world that um, now nobody wants to look, you know. Um, so it, it's it's nice to see that some of us and some of us that have a very calm and, and rational approach to this are actually getting some attention, you know. Um, and yeah, just in general, Benjamin, everything I've just said about capturing that that energy between people i think people like you embody that you know because you take the time to listen and to understand and, and that's what we need to see and especially the youth need to see that mm-hmm. yeah 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 be the podcast you wish to see yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> to quote a south african actually yeah congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion if you enjoyed it do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff and do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well Have a good night.